Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog that you can check out if you'd like, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. And if you want to reach out to me, uh, please feel free to do so. You can send me an email to rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. And uh, I've got one more housekeeping issue. On my podcast website, bigamateurism.com, I will occasionally link to supplemental materials just to give uh, listeners the opportunity to take a look at what I discuss on an episode-by-episode basis. And I'm going to be linking to some uh, material for this episode, and you can find that at my podcast website. It's not going to be available on the third-party podcast directories. All right, today is April 25th, 2022, and in this episode, we're going to talk about that California bill that I mentioned in the last episode. I've been struggling a little bit on how to launch this episode because there are so many things that I want to talk about. So I I think what I'm going to do is offer some broad overview comments, then talk a little bit about what this bill tries to do, and then where it fits into the mosaic of athletes' rights initiatives across the spectrum from Congress to litigation to agency action to uh, voluntary agreement, all of those ways to try to reconcile the tensions that exist in the interests of the athletes whose labors underwrite the uh, entire big-time college sports industry and the interest of those who are benefiting from it. And this bill, or, or bills like it, there have actually been two other bills that I'm aware of that have tried to do with this bill does, and that is essentially create a revenue sharing uh, framework so that some of the money in the system comes back to the people who actually earn it without uh, making it look like this is outright pay for play and that athletes are employees and that we're moving to a purely professional model. So the bill does some things to try to conform it to the sensibilities of decision makers by trying to avoid some of these hot button issues, but it still is moving in a direction that makes the Power Five and the NCAA and all the other stakeholder beneficiaries really nervous. And so we're going to talk about the other two bills that tried to do this before Austin. The first one came out of New York in late 2019 or early 2020, never made it out of committee, and it was viewed as this extreme outlier. Then we had the uh, federal legislation, the Athletes Bill of Rights in December of 2020, which got a lot of attention. But even that bill that was sponsored by some well-known United States senators like uh, Richard Blumenthal and Cory Booker wasn't viewed as an imminent threat to stakeholder beneficiary interests. It, It was viewed as an extreme counterweight to the name, image, and likeness legislation that had been proposed that was limited to name, image, and likeness, whereas this Athletes' Bill of Rights was expansive and and dealt with a, a number of important issues, including name, image, and likeness. But 
that bill just died down, and nobody's really talking about it very much right now. And uh, that's one of the reasons I think that this California bill is so important, because it puts those issues back on the table, and I think f at least, the very least, forces us to look at them again with fresh eyes. And after the historic year of 2021, particularly the summer of 2021, with the Austin decision, with the NCAA's failure to get anything out of Congress to protect its interests, with the name, image, and likeness debacle and the NCAA dumping their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions at the last minute, and then the transfer market. So you have a much different environment than existed in uh, 2019 and 2020. 20. And it'll be interesting to see if this approach, which I view as pay-for-play light because it accomplishes the goal of getting the athletes some money, direct money tied to the value of their services, but at the same time, it avoids or sidesteps this important issue of whether revenue-producing athletes or any athletes are going to be recognized as true employees. And I'm going to try to approach this bill, not necessarily in terms of supporting it or criticizing it. I want to just talk about it and what I think it says about the state of athletes' rights in April of 2022. When you look at this bill and then you look at the potential benefits and then perhaps some potential unintended negative uh, consequences, you see that there really isn't a, a clear understanding of what this post-Austin nil transfer world really is right now. And I think I'm going to bottom line my approach to this bill and looking at it as really a stress test. This is a stress test of the athletes' rights movement and the, uh, the way that in-system stakeholder decision makers and advocates, and by in-system stakeholder decision makers, I'm including congressmen and women at the federal level, and I'm including state legislatures as well. This may also apply to federal courts, but it's really hard to get a sense of what the courts are thinking until they really issue their opinion. But this bill was debated last week. And it's unique in that sense because this is the first bill that, outside of the name, image, and likeness context that has actually been put to a debate in a committee and has made it out of committee. So this bill made it out of the Senate Education Committee, which is where it was introduced last week. And the discussion was limited, but I think it was instructive. And now the, the bill is going to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then if it makes it out of judiciary, then I think it will be put to a floor vote. And there was a lot of pushback on this bill that I think reflects uh, some of the values issues that tend to come up again and again and again when you start talking about regulatory models and financial models that start to look like outright pay for play. And what I heard at the, in the hearing last week is that the, the bar is going to be a little bit higher for, for that kind of framework, for that kind of legislation. And I, th I think if you view this as a stress test to see what kind of mileage the athletes' rights movement can get out of the Austin decision and out of a more liberal nil marketplace and a more liberal transfer market, I sensed that there was not as much movement forward as you might think, given the, the consequence, at least on paper, the sim symbolic consequence of the Austin decision. And then 
the fact that this no market exists and uh, college sports has not come to a fatal collapse. So what I want to do is just go ahead and, and describe this bill uh, briefly at the outset, and then I'm going to come back around. And this may be a, a multi-episode endeavor because I really do think it's important. But I just want to talk briefly about the, the bill and then where it fits in. And then one of the threshold problems with this type of bill, and that goes to the historically unreliable and inconsistent accounting methods for determining how much money is actually in the system in big-time college sports and the revenues and the expenses and how you quantify the revenues within big-time athletics budgets and how you determine where the money goes. Those are really important issues here and have been the subject of debate and disagreement for decades now. And I think those kinds of issues have gotten more complex not less complex as the business has grown and grown. So we're going to talk about that as well. And then I think in a separate episode, I want to talk about the values issues that came up at, at this hearing, because that is really, I think, where the rubber is going to meet the road, not just with these bills, you know, in the political process where the way you articulate your values is so, so important, but also in the litigation pathway and then this administrative agency pathway that that is being used right now to try to, to get uh, these athletes recognized as employees under federal law. All right, so let's get into this bill. It's titled the College Athlete Race and Gender Equity Act. Great title. And uh, that presses a lot of buttons right out of the gate here. The basic purpose of this bill is to provide a revenue sharing framework on a sport-by-sport -sport basis. And the way the bill is structured, it's supposed to protect the existing athletics scholarships. So those wouldn't be on the chopping block. It's supposed to protect, for the most part, the existing status quo with the university salary structure in the athletics department. And it, in theory, shouldn't interfere with any reasonable business activities of the athletics side. It just takes money on a sport-by-sport -sport basis, and it allows some opportunity for the athletes in sports that actually generate some net revenue to get a piece of that. And it's also tied to education. That was one of the selling points here, that the money that may be generated would only be available to athletes if they received a degree within six years. Initially, it was seven years, but that was bumped back to six. And then there were also all of these gender equity requirements that were put in. And I'm, I'm going to talk more about that when I get to the values discussion, because I think in this case, as in so many instances in debates over athletes' rights and the regulatory and financial model of big-time college sports, gender equity gets waved around as some grand immunity shield, often without a, a discussion of how gender equity issues are actually being advanced. And the NCAA's perfected that. It's an art form to the NCAA and the Power Five. I think you see some of that in the way that some of these, these pathways, the athletes' rights pathways, have been articulated and have been justified at the values level. Okay, so let me first start with the sponsor uh, of this bill. This bill was put together by a state senator named Stephen Bradford. He's African-American, and he was involved in putting together the California Name, Image, and Likeness Law, SB 206, also known as the Fair Pay to Play 
act. And it was a success, a resounding success, and really launched the the NIL movement and I think was influential in, in pressing the athletes' rights discussions forward while the NCAA sat on its hands, as it is so good at doing. He has been working closely with the National College Players Association, whose director is Ramogi Huma, who I've talked a bit about in this podcast. And Huma's been involved in athletes' rights for a long time. He was involved in the Northwestern football team's attempt to unionize in 2014. And then he was involved in supporting the O'Bannon litigation. And then he was also involved in SB. 206. And he's testified in Congress in those hearings in the Senate in 2020 and 2021. He testified, I don't know, there were seven hearings. He may have testified four or five times, but he was a go-to advocate on athletes' rights. And then post-Austin, he has been involved in two other initiatives. And one is a a charge with the National Labor Relations Board to try to get athletes recognized as statutory employees for purposes of the National Labor Relations Act. And then just a few months ago, he and his organization filed a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights contending that the NCAA and Power Five practices and their exploitation of football immense basketball players had an unlawful, disparate impact on those players and haven't heard anything on on that complaint and really haven't heard anything on the charge with the NLRB. And now the NCPA and Huma are working on this bill in California. And I think it was when he filed the complaint with Office of Civil Rights, Huma made some comments to the media to the effect that he and his organization were using the quote-unquote kitchen sink approach. And they were trying to put as many athletes' rights balls in the air as they could to try to keep the momentum moving forward. And that's an interesting strategy. And I think by its very characterization, it has some potential downsides because you, when you use that kind of approach, I think you expand the universe of potential unintended negative consequences. And I don't say that as a criticism. Huma and his organization have done phenomenal work. And I think it's difficult for people who are on the status quo side of the fence to understand what the view is from the athlete's rights side. And you are up against some of the most powerful forces in the United States of America who have combined their power to shut you down. And the fact that that Huma has just withstood those pressures and he stood up to these people is really a profile in courage in my judgment. And I talked about this a little bit and I wrote about it in my blog, but during the attorney's fees litigation in O'Bannon, and the NCAA refused to let that go, that case was essentially dead. The substantive litigation was dead in 2016. The NCAA just could not let go of the attorney's fees litigation. And they took that from the magistrate judge who has original jurisdiction on that kind of ministerial issue in these big antitrust cases. And then they took it to the district court and they took it to the Ninth Circuit. It's ridiculous what they did to challenge the award of attorney's fees to the athletes. But in the magistrate judge's opinion, the guy's name I think was Nathaniel Cousins, and he oversaw all of the administrative side of that case, the discovery and all, all that stuff, and also the attorney's fees. But he wrote the initial opinion. And when he was describing 
why these athletes were entitled to attorney's fees, he pulled a quote from R.R. Martin's book, The Game of Thrones. And the quote was this, when you play the game of thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. And he used that quote to describe the forces that these athletes were up against. And the NCAA, the Power Five, their lawyers, their lobbyists, their minions out in the media, in the sports entertainment industrial complex and in the halls of Congress and in state legislatures. These people take no prisoners. There's only winning and losing, living and dying. There is no middle ground. And I don't see that changing. I don't see the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries backing away from their militant opposition to the athletes' rights movement. They're just biding time for another shot at Congress. They're changing the words that they use, but their opinions haven't changed. Their values haven't changed. Their disdain for the revenue-producing athletes who fill their pockets with gold hasn't changed. And I, don't, I just don't see that changing. We have the same people who created this mess and this dysfunctional, immoral system now putting themselves in charge of fixing it. But, so I have enormous respect for what Huma has done and is continuing to do. By the same token, I think it's important to look honestly at where things stand and the limits of the new environment. And I think the particular limit of a kitchen sink approach heading into the next wave of discussions here. And that's going to transition us into the work of this transformation committee and then a re-engagement with Congress after the midterm elections. That, that's where this is headed. And what does all this look like then? And we're going to have uh, potentially a, a fundamentally different set of circumstances. So you had the NCAA and Power Five in control of this discussion until they lost control of the Senate. That was one of the most important turning points in, in this whole perfect storm from 2019 to the present. And when they lost their advantage in the Senate and all their Republican friends who were running interference for them, they just pulled out and they thought they had a shot in Austin and they were going to get what they could get from Congress. They thought maybe they could get preemption even in a Democrat-controlled Congress, but they thought if they got absolute antitrust immunity from the Supreme Court in Austin, then they would be sitting pretty. And it was only on the backside of that embarrassing defeat in Austin that they started to talk about changing their language and making over their constitution and you know, doing all these things for more for uh, public preening than to really change the way that they did business. And now they're just biding their time again. It's uh, promise and delay, promise and delay. And that uh, promise and delay strategy is a go-to tactic for the NCAA. They did it with name, image, and likeness. They've been promising voluntary rules changes since 2019, and to this date, not a single word of the relevant bylaw 12.5 has been changed. Not a single word. And I think in the current environment where promises from in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are viewed with the appropriate skepticism, the delay side of that equation has just bred uncertainty and uncertainty can lead to poor decision-making. And I think that's the environment that we're in right now. So let me just turn to this bill. And one of the most important issues that came up at this 
discussion, this debate over the bill last week, is that uh, nobody understands how this is going to work financially. Nobody feels like they have a good handle on what the formula is. And the advocates of the bill didn't really offer specific examples. Or one senator said, I want to see the spreadsheet. Show me the spreadsheet. And there wasn't a spreadsheet. So that's one of the important things we're going to talk about here and how difficult that's going to be on a, a bill like this because of the problems in accounting and, and consistency and uniformity in big-time athletics budgets. All right, so let me try to put this together in an example. And again, I hope I am capturing the essence of what this bill is trying to accomplish. But it, again, it's on a sport-by-sport basis. So let's take a hypothetical Power 5 school that has a big-time football program. And let's assume that in a given year, that football program generated $40 million in gross revenue, however you define it. Under this bill, you would take 50% of that revenue and use it for calculating a potential player distribution. The other 50%, so in this example, 20 million would be completely untouchable. That would go to be spent how it is spent in the status quo that exists at that school. The other 50%, the player distribution 50%, you subtract from that the total cost of all of the athletics scholarships or all the spending on the individual football players for, you know, scholarships, room, board, books, tuition. I guess the cost of attendance stipend would be included there. So in my hypothetical, I'm assuming that a athletic scholarship, the whole package for one year is $50,000. That would be about what you might see at a private university or out of state for a state university. So that's on the upper end of the range of scholarship costs. And in Division One football, Power 5 football, team is allowed to award 85 full scholarships every year. So you take 85 scholarships and multiply by $50,000 and you get a little over $4 million, $4.2 million. Let's just call it four. And then you subtract that from the 20 million, the 50% that you are using to calculate any potential player distributions. That leaves $16 million for that year. And then assuming that every player would receive an equal share, and there really wasn't a discussion about whether you know you would try to draw distinctions between high-value players and low-value players and all that stuff. Let's just, let's just assume that everybody's getting a distribution. You take that $16 million in quote-unquote profit and you divide it among the 85 players and it comes to $188,000. That money would then go into a trust fund and presumably this would be renewed every year. So if a player was there for four years contributing to the bottom line and these numbers were the same, you'd be looking at close to, I don't know, seven hundred. dollars $50,000 over four years. And then if that player graduates within six years, they can receive a distribution or distributions from this trust fund that is set up to be managed by an external third-party fiduciary that has nothing to do with the university or the athletics department. And that would be essentially the earnings of the athlete, of that given athlete. 
And then you would do the same thing, a sport by sport by sport. You do the same thing with men's basketball, with women's basketball, and on on down the line to non-revenue sports. And what that means as a practical matter, and this didn't really come out the way I think it needed to come out at the debate on this bill. As a practical matter, what that means is that the sports that make zero revenue have zero distributions because there's no revenue to divide. There's no formula to apply, which means, and this is the truth of the matter, which means that these non-revenue producing sport athletes who receive full or partial scholarships are getting a form of compensation that exceeds what those sports and those athletes bring in revenue. That is just the reality of the business model. And that is a a tough pill to swallow when you put it in those stark terms, which is one of the reasons I think in this bill they tried to fluff it up by saying they were trying to protect status quo interests and all these other scholarships would still be paid so it wouldn't result in the reduction in any non-revenue sports scholarships. Those would all be protected. It would just take some of this excess money and give it to the people who actually earn it. Not a radical concept in the United States of America, but in this dysfunctional business model that relies on the regressive transfer of wealth from black laborers to white beneficiaries, it is a heresy to apply those American values. And uh, I'm going to talk more about some of the values that were injected into this discussion really as pushback to this bill. And one of the primary concerns was, well, what's the impact on women and non-revenue sports? And what about Title IX and all the usual red herrings? And I think that Bradford and Huma didn't do a very good job of articulating how those interests were protected and that in the existing status quo, they are getting benefits in the form of athletic scholarships and administrative personnel and coaching salaries in sports that generate zero revenue and that but for football and men's basketball revenue either wouldn't exist because the university wouldn't pay for them or the university would have to subsidize them completely, which is true at 95% of all NCAA schools. It's only in this small fraction of big time power five schools that there's even enough revenue, even in the revenue producing sports to be talking about these kinds of distributions. And I think that important reality got lost as well. There was just a lot of confusion on that point. And again, that was a problem with, I think, messaging as much as anything. But it was a lesson, I think, in how easily all of these false narratives and these false dilemmas and these false binaries can just come to life on the fly and with enormous effectiveness and enormous force because they have been so deeply ensconced into the debate and the public consciousness. And it also speaks to how poorly informed these political decision makers are. And I've talked about this in in the NCAA Power Fives campaign in the Senate in uh, 2020, 2021. There was zero attempt to try to educate them on the business model. They wanted these senators to be as ignorant as possible so that the Republican NCAA friendly senators could just run roughshod over the rest of the Senate. And they were very close to getting that done. And I think you see the same thing with these state legislatures. When I'm listening to this hearing, and this debate and some of the questions and some of the concerns, I'm just thinking, oh my God, these folks just need a, they need a a little lesson here in in the business model. And and that's a challenge because these people are very busy people. They have a lot of other very important things to to work on and to talk about. And just looking at the agenda for this single
single day and you look at some of the the weighty issues that this committee had to handle you just you wonder how incentivized they are to really roll up their their sleeves and, and understand the business model at a granular level and the athletes don't have the lobbying power that the universities do all, all those things that, that I've been talking about, but it, it also speaks to how easy it is for the law of unintended consequences to take over in the political process. And that's true regardless of which side of the fence you're on. And that's one of the risks of the NCAA running to Congress, as it did in 2019-2020, and asking for a federal bailout. You don't know how that's going to turn out. And I think the same thing's possible here, even in the state of California, because of all of the uncertainty that arises from a bill like like this that is not clean, tight, precise, and elegant the way that the name, image, and likeness bill was in 2019. So it, it presents some problems here. And as those concerns were raised over the course of the debate on this bill, I think you saw the advocates, both Bradford and Huma, trying to say yes to everything. Oh, no, we're not going to impact the status quo at all. The coaches can keep their salaries. We're not interested in trying to put people out of work. And we think that there's plenty of money in the system. They just couldn't identify where exactly it was, if money had to move where it would come from and just raised all kinds of questions. But they tried to make it sound like everybody was going to be happy. Nobody was going to have money taken away from them. And essentially the status quo could rock along, but we have this way to try to get the athletes who actually earn the money, regardless of, of what sport they play. So if this same formula would apply to all of the non-revenue sports, they just would have to generate some revenue. And I think one of the points they tried to make on the Title IX objections is that, look, this is a, a gender-neutral formula. We're not saying that only football, men's basketball players or women's basketball players can get this uh, revenue. We're just saying any sport that generates revenue to distribute can use this law to try to get some distributions out of that trust fund. That may be true legally, but politically, that it wasn't landing that way. It, it sounded a lot like money's going to have to come from some other source, and it, it looked possible to these decision makers, at least three of them, that that money might come out of the pockets of women athletes and male non-revenue athletes. And that's obviously something that you got to deal with at the political level, which is why the NCAA and the Power Five throw up that uh, Title IX gender equity boogeyman to try to scare these legislators. And it's been pretty effective. And so what I want to do now is to try to put this bill categorically into the mosaic of athletes' rights pathways that are on the table now and, and look at where it fits in and what it might look like going forward. And I guess I should say this too, because this state bill, this California bill, it uh, really focuses exclusively on revenue sharing. It doesn't get into trying to tweak nil. It doesn't get into any of the health and safety issues. It doesn't talk about transfer issues. It, it, it really focuses just on this revenue sharing component. And I think there's value in that because when you isolate that issue, I think you really have to deal with the inequities in the system as between the laborers who actually underwrite this whole enterprise and then all of the downstream beneficiaries. And the federal bill, this 
the Athletes' Bill of Rights, this Booker-Blumenthal bill. It, it covers a lot of territory, but it has a revenue-sharing component that's very, very similar, virtually identical to this California law. So the discussion over this California bill could be a, a, a good predictor of how this issue could be viewed in Congress if the Athletes' Bill of Rights gets a little energy from what happened in the summer of 20. 21. So let's just look at some of these categories, these pathways, and the ways that athletes are quote-unquote compensated. One of the things that's important to point out is that the, the word compensation has been applied to all kinds of benefits that really aren't true compensation in the sense that it is a payment for athletic services in a true employer-employee relationship where the employee provides the services, the employer provides a salary and benefits and has to comply with all the requirements of being an employer. And then the employee spends the money however they want to. A lot of these pathways are really outside of that and the exchanges aren't true compensation the way that we typically think about compensation. So the first category I want to talk about, and, and this is a pathway, it has been a pathway to enhancing the overall benefits packages for athletes. And those are in-kind exchanges. And that is true with the athletics scholarship. And one of the great fallacies that the NCAA has promoted is that the athletics scholarship is really not a payment for athletic services, but it is just the reimbursement for the reasonable expenses of attending college. And it is truly an educational exchange, not any quid pro quo for the athletic uh, ability, talent, and labor of the athlete who receives the scholarship. That's been a fraud since the very inception of the full athletic scholarship in 1956. And Walter Byers, who invented that scholarship or was the, the president of the NCAA when it came into existence, he said as much, both in his 1995 book on sportsmanlike conduct, but also in his deposition in the white suit, that 2006 suit over the cost of attendance scholarships. He had his deposition taken. And he said, but to heck with the, the cost of attendance scholarship, the whole athletic scholarship is outright pay for play because these universities are giving these things of value, these in-kind benefits, tuition, room, board, books, and other things in exchange for the athletes' athletic talent, ability, skill, and labor. That, that's the nature of the deal. So you have the in-kind exchange that has been propagandized into an educational exchange, but is truly outright pay for play. And uh, the NCAA has very carefully regulated this in-kind exchange and placed ridiculous limits on it. And that was one of the reasons that the Power Five launched the autonomy movement in 2013-2014 when they were trying to get ahead of what was happening in O'Bannon. They were afraid that Judge Wilkin was just going to blow the doors on amateurism. So they wanted to come up with a better benefits package to show the uh, court and the world that they were serious about trying to recognize the value that these athletes brought to the business model. And so they got this special permission and that applies only to the Power Five to provide some extra benefits. It was nothing game-changing, but uh, some additional benefits that increased the package of goods and services that the universities were selling to these high, highly prized 
athletes. So you, you had that movement, but there were limits on it because th those benefits were still subject to the overall amateurism-based uh, compensation limit, and there couldn't be outright pay for play. The second category and this other pathway to enhance the benefits that athletes may be entitled to is name, image, and likeness, but that operates by by its very definition completely outside of the university's control. They are not supposed to have any involvement in this market, and it is not compensation for the value of the athlete's services. It is a recognition of value that may be a product of their athletic talent, ability, and performance, but it is not actual compensation for services. It is a way for these athletes to use their very personal intellectual property and to market that in any way that they want to try to make some money that is completely outside of the relationship between the athletes and the universities. And remember that under all of these name, image, and likeness laws and all the university policies, the executive orders, this ridiculous interim policy of the NCAA, the universities aren't allowed to have a, a name, image, and likeness contract with the athletes. They are completely outside of that, that marketplace. And these uh, contracts are only supposed to be between the athletes and third parties. Parties. And then the, the third pathway and, and the way to try to increase the quote-unquote compensation package or the benefits package are through these revenue sharing proposals. And they can take a variety of forms. And there have been three pieces of legislation that have been proposed to try to do this by force through Congress or through a state legislature. The first one came out, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier in the episode, this, this bill in New York came out that had a revenue sharing component and the NCAA went crazy over that. And that, remember, that was two years before Austin and before the nil debacle and, and then the relaxation of the transfer rules. So it was a different world then. And talking about revenue sharing back then was heresy. It was just, it was a dead letter. And that bill had no chance of even making it out of committee. The NCAA knew that, but it was a good propaganda piece. And I think that's one of the unintended potential negative consequences of this California bill if people aren't really thinking about that type of arrangement much differently today than they did in 2019. That remains to be seen, but there was some pushback in the, uh, on this California bill, so who knows? Then in 2020, December of 2020, you had Booker, Blumenthal, uh, Gillibrand, and uh, Schatz, all Democrats, putting together this Athletes' Bill of Rights. And I'm going to talk about that in some detail, and I'm going to do a compare and contrast between that and the Jerry Moran Bill, which came out in February of 2021. Those are kind of the polar opposites of federal legislation and not a lot of middle ground there. But, but I think what's different about this California law as a revenue-sharing law is the way that it tries to appease the political opposition that might come. And they do that through this trust fund that's tied to graduation. So they try to link it to education, which is a winning 
uh, political uh, argument, I think, and a political tactic. And then they also try to cover it up with gender equity. But honestly, it's not quite clear whether they are doing anything more than restating what the current Title IX obligations are for any university. And they put some draconian language in there to make it appear as if they're really going to be tough on gender equity. And there's some punishments for athletics administrators who uh, don't adhere to Title IX and that kind of thing. But I'm not sure there's a whole lot of there there on the gender equity front. But this bill is clearly structured to try to deflect as much political criticism as possible. And I'm, I'm not sure that it was very effective at that in the debate that occurred last week. But So that's the revenue sharing component. And so the next category of uh, potential expansion of benefits and rights and quote-unquote compensation, is a federal lawsuit out in California, the House suit, which is a name, image, and likeness lawsuit. I've described it as O'Bannon 2.0, but it has the potential on paper to put a hurting on the NCAA, and we don't know what's uh, really going on there yet because it's too early in the litigation, and I'm going to do an episode or two on that because I think that really is an important case. It hasn't gotten a ton of coverage. So that's one possibility. Then another pathway to an enhanced status, enhanced benefit package, enhanced protections, and possibly enhanced compensation, who knows on on that uh, last part, the compensation part, is this campaign to have athletes recognized as employees, true employees, either under the National Labor Relations Act or under the Federal Labor Standards Act. And we have two charges with the National Labor Relations Board, one from the NCPA that I identified earlier, another from Michael Hsu. And both the NCPA through HUMA and also Michael Shu, they accepted the invitation of the National Labor Relations Board's general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, in November of 2021 to challenge the NCAA Power Five's classification of athletes as non-employees. And she said pretty directly that she thought that these athletes were indeed employees. And so you had these two charges filed that would try to get that designation changed and have the athletes protected, essentially, under the National Labor Relations Act. And if that were to occur, it would give the athletes some leverage to force the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries to the bargaining table so they could at least sit down and talk about these things without the NCAA and Power Five having iron-fisted control over that conversation. But even that option is fraught with uncertainty because there really hasn't been a lot of discussion about what a true collective bargaining scenario might look like and what the talking points would be there and how the athletes would be able to sit at that table with truly equal bargaining power. And I discussed that at a broad brush level in episode number 98, which I think came out on February 14th of 2021, just a couple months ago. But the title of it is Athletes as Employees. Will the NCAA Power Five continue their totalitarian opposition? And 
I discussed in that episode that a lot of these athletes as employee issues are really underdeveloped and some are completely undeveloped. And we really haven't had the discussion on that issue because the NCAA and Power Five have been so effective at putting up a firewall against even any discussion about that possibility. And I went back into the archives and pulled some quotes from congressional hearings. And you might want to check that episode out. The opening montage, I think, says it all. So you don't even have to listen to the whole episode. Just listen to the opening montage. Those are powerful people in system stakeholder decision makers, including Greg Sankey, the most powerful man in college sports right now, saying no, hell no to athletes as employees. And then there is yet another pathway on the athletes as employees issue, and that is a litigation pathway. There's a federal lawsuit that is now in the Third Circuit on a question, a legal question of whether or not college athletes can be deemed employees for the purposes of the Fair Labor Standards Act which is a federal law that governs hourly wages and, and overtime work. I don't see that lawsuit, honestly, as being that helpful to the true revenue-producing athletes in the Power Five, at, at least not from an economic standpoint, because the hourly wage approach doesn't begin to capture the true value of those athletes. I guess at a broad brush level, if the athletes are successful in being recognized as employees under the FLSA, that could be another step closer to getting true employee status under the NLRB or, or state laws that would give the athletes the ability to try to force a collective bargaining that had some teeth. And then that leads me to this last pathway, and that is through just voluntary negotiation outside of the employer-employee context where these parties sit down and hammer out an agreement that makes sense, that uh, takes the rights of uh, both sets of interest into account, and they try to come up with an intelligent res resolution to all of these tensions outside of pathways where an external regulator is coming in and telling anybody what to do. The problem with that pathway is that the NCAA and the Power Five and all of their in-system minions have uh, proven time and time again that they're incapable of bargaining in good faith. They come in with a my way or the highway approach. They have convinced themselves of the righteousness of their cause, and they are living in a groupthink cult-like environment where this dysfunctional, immoral business model actually makes sense. And they've surrounded themselves with people who think the exact same way. And that's why we've had to you know, look at external regulatory influences to force the NCAA and the Power Five to change because they have uh, militantly refused to do so on their own. So this notion that the NCAA and Power Five are going to have some come-to-Jesus spiritual awakening on the need to sit down and bargain in good faith short of uh, true collective bargaining and having athletes recognized as employees under federal law, I think is a, is a pipe dream. And that's unfortunate. But that is technically an option that could be explored. So when I look at how this California law fits into the mosaic I, I just described, it's really an interesting middle ground pathway because it has the benefit of having the force of law because it comes in the form of a state 
law, although it's not clear from, from the bill itself what the enforcement mechanisms would be. And that came up at the hearing as well. And, it, and that's a very important unanswered aspect of this proposed legislation. And the bill also, at least on its face, has some appeal at the political level because it doesn't get into the employer-employee issue. It, it really skirts that. And then it also has this gender equity component, which is designed to enhance existing Title IX gender equity enforcement. And again, it's not clear what the purpose of that is, because I think it just restates existing laws. So th those are the benefits on its face. But I, I think at the same time, there are substantial downsides to this legislation because you don't get true employee status with enforceable rights, employee rights. And you do have the interests of the true producers in this system, the football and men's basketball players, being somewhat obscured through this attention to the downstream beneficiaries of, of that labor and that revenue. And I think when you try to conflate those issues, you, you have some problems from the very beginning. And again, I'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the values issue. But another important downside of this bill is that if it goes into effect, this is going to give the NCAA and the Power Five an entirely new justification for going back to Congress. And they're going to say in 2022 what the NCAA's federal and state legislation working group said in 2020 about that New York bill. And that is that this is a fundamental change in the marketplace. We have outright pay for play. College sports will never survive this. And they made that argument, the federal and state legislation working group made that argument about the New York bill in the context of uniformity and their request for federal preemption of any state laws that interfered with their compensation limits or their regulatory authority. And that bill just disappeared. Renewing it here and, and looking at where this bill stands now, you know, made it out of the education committee, four to three vote. And the three votes were technically abstentions. I viewed them as no votes. That's a pretty tight margin. And of the seven members of that committee, there are five Democrats, two Republicans, and both Republicans abstained. So you have some of the same partisanship that you had in Congress on some of these bills that were proposed. But, you know, in the California legislature, that's less of an issue because I think there are 40 senators in the California uh, State Senate and 31 are Democrats. And it's viewed, I think rightfully so, as one of the most progressive, quote unquote, liberal state legislatures in the country. So uh, a bill like the uh, Bradford bill, the NCPA bill, has a better chance in California than anywhere else. And of course, you have the precedent of SB 206, the, the name, image, and likeness bill. But what you're going to hear, I think, if this bill makes it out of judiciary and then goes to a vote on the floor and is passed in some form that retains the meat and potatoes of the revenue sharing features of the bill, you're going to see the NCAA and more importantly, the Power Five going after that bill like uh, sharks go after chum in the water. And they're going to be making the same arguments uh, that were raised in, in 2020 with regard to the New York law. And they're going to say, look, this bill is, it's not just that it's an existential threat to college sports as we know them. 
But how in the world can we have an, a level playing field if California has this law and then other states, just like NIL, they're going to say that the same thing that happened with NIL and this out of control NIL market is going to happen with revenue sharing. And you're going to have states passing revenue sharing laws to try to uh, keep up with the Joneses and not lose any advantage in the talent acquisition market in the competitive advantage disadvantage battle that drives so much of the big time college sports marketplace. And that is an, a brand new argument for preemption and federal intervention and perhaps antitrust immunity. And also, I think, breathes some life back into those arguments in the name, image, and likeness context. So this bill, again, with this kitchen sink approach and the enhanced likelihood of unintended negative consequences from that approach, you could see the NCAA and Power 5 actually benefiting from the passage of this law in their campaign in Congress, primarily in the Senate. So it's really, I think, a crapshoot, honestly, with this bill. But that's going to take me into this discussion about how you calculate the revenue, because that could be a, a threshold death knell for this bill, even in the California legislature. And I think what I want to do is talk a little bit about the, the history of how the experts have viewed the accounting and the math and, and how you determine revenues and expenses in big-time college sports budgets. And uh, to talk about the thinking on big-time college sports finances, I'm going to use as a template a blog post that I wrote in 2019, and I was talking about some of the myths and the misbeliefs in big-time college sports. And one is that big-time college sports programs lose money, that the university will go broke given the rate of athletic spending and we're going to have to start taking money away from students and academic programs and all of those things. And that was a skies falling narrative that really, I think, began in earnest in the early 2000s and Miles Brand's discussions at the National Press Club that I talked about in the earlier episodes of this podcast and that I've, I've written about as well. And this notion that uh, athletic spending is out of control and it's going to pose an existential threat to higher education because if that kind of spending continues then it's just a matter of time before the universities are going to have to subsidize the athletics budgets and that's going to mean a the, the death of undergraduate education and in 2010 the Knight Commission issued its final substantive report and it's titled Restoring the Balance, Dollars, Values, and the Future of College Sports. And they were just really in deep with the skies falling narrative on athletic spending. And they, they put it this way. They said, rates of spending growth are breathtaking. This financial arms race threatens the combined viability of athletics programs and the integrity of our universities. It cannot be maintained. And they go on to say that only a tiny number of college athletics programs reap the financial rewards that come from selling high-priced tickets and winning championships. Just seven athletics programs gener generated enough revenue to finish in the black in each of the past five years. 
And then they come in for the kill with this. Reliance on institutional resources to underwrite athletics programs is reaching the point at which some institutions must choose between funding freshman English and funding the football team. And that framing is really important because that is really just an extension of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and this implied requirement in that framework that athletics departments should be fully self-sustaining. But as we know, only and it's true that only a small number of schools have the ability to generate that kind of revenue, but it's more than seven, according to Mark Emmert in his testimony in the House on September 30th of 2021. That number is about 50, but that's an important qualification and something that should have been put on the table more directly at this hearing on the California bill, because the impact of this revenue sharing component is really minimal when you look at the, what, 1,100, 1,200 schools across the NCAA in all three divisions. There are only 50 schools that generate enough money for this formula and this revenue sharing concept to even apply. And I've talked about this till I'm blue in the face, but one of the biggest lies in this whole debate about athletes' rights and where's the money going to come from is this belief that athletics departments have to be fully self-sustaining when the truth of the matter is that outside of those 50 schools that generate enough revenue to actually work that way, even in the Power Five, you have schools that are getting what are called uh, direct institutional support payments because their athletics budgets can't cover the cost of the athletics department and the athletics spending. And then you get down into lower level divisions one and all of division two and division three, and there is zero revenue to be applied to really have a meaningful impact on paying the athletics budget. So what do those schools do? They pay for their entire athletics budget out of general university revenues. That's the way it works for 95 or 98% of the entire NCAA membership. But this argument, and it came up at this hearing, that, oh my gosh, where's the money going to be going to come from because it can't possibly come from general university money is simply a false narrative. And it is so deeply ingrained into the way that decision makers think about the business model that they just go down that path without any pushback. And there wasn't much pushback at that hearing. But all of these skies falling athletic spending arguments are built around that flaw in the the way that the business model has been articulated and uh, the way that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have defined the discussion around athletics finances is imbued with some of these false values and this notion that big-time college sports is out of control and if uh, we don't have all of this money then there's going to be a crisis for non-revenue sports and for quote-unquote Olympic sports and for women's sports. And those are just scare tactics. And those scare tactics and those assumptions about the, the business model and the way the money moves and the financial framework 
and accounting in big-time college sports have been framed largely by those institutional interests. And so you have, on the one hand, these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and then some external academic-oriented voices, uh, like the Knight Commission, the, the Drake Group, some people in academia who have written books about college sports, and I'm going to talk about a couple of them here in, in a second. But you have them saying that the notion that there's any benefit to big-time college sports is a ruse because all these sports are really drawing down on general university resources, and the way that the accounting works understates the costs not the revenues. So on one side of this debate, you have people that are, in my judgment, fundamentally hostile to the very existence of big-time college sports and higher education. And that traces back to the Carnegie Report. They have come up with a way to articulate the financial framework and the accounting methods and how you decide what's revenue, what's an expense, and how much of both there are. They have come up with a narrative that makes it appear as if the financial situation is far worse in athletics budgets than is disclosed in financial accounting and reporting requirements. On the other side of that fence, you have a much smaller voice that says, wait a minute, the opposite is true. And what these universities are really doing is hiding revenue. And so these, these reports that come out that make it look like they're just breaking even or even losing money are grossly misleading because they are overstating their expenses and they are hiding revenue. So what's the truth? Well, we really don't know. And another problem with athletics budgeting and financing and accounting is that it is notoriously opaque. And one of the things that I like about the Knight Commission's work is that it has been pretty consistent in asking for transparency in college sports finances and where the money really goes and how, how much these athletic programs are actually spending. That's a great question. And I think that on both sides of this fence, whether you think that revenues are being hidden or whether you think expenses are being understated, I think that these people kind of land in the same place. And that is that the lack of transparency is a huge problem here. And the NCAA has an annual financial reporting requirement and schools have to submit these documents to the NCAA, but those documents are not made public. And so the external watchdog groups that are, are trying to figure out what this financial picture really looks like, they've got to serve public records requests to all of the schools, the public schools in, in the Power Five, that's pretty much how it works. There, there are several databases out there that try to look at this, and they use basically the same approach. But one of the common problems they face is just getting the data. So that I think of the 65 Power Five schools, 53 are public schools. The private schools don't, don't have to respond to public records requests or don't have to provide information because they're not public entities. But the public schools are supposed to provide that information, and a lot of them do. Some are cagey in how they respond. But you have these, these databases. You have a USA Today database. You have the Knight Commission has its own database. I think the Drake Group has its own database. You have the NCAA 
database, again, which is not uh, a matter of public record. And then you have a new Sportico database. And I have reviewed all those databases and read the fine print. And there is a big asterisk for all of these databases, including the NCAA database. And that is that because of the inherent differences in the way that universities handle their budgets, it's almost impossible to compare apples to apples. So at best, you are just painting with a very broad brush and trying to get a snapshot of gross revenues and gross expenses. But absent of forensic accounting, nobody really knows what's in the system, where the money is going. And I'll just give you a couple examples of the thinking on both sides of this issue. So there, there are uh, a couple of experts, uh, financial experts, antitrust experts, and accounting experts who have talked about the problems in the way that the status quo has gone about trying to estimate revenues and expenses. And these, these gentlemen are Dan Rasher and Andy Schwartz. And Rasher has been a go-to expert. He's one of the leading experts on the business of big-time college sports and the economics of big-time college sports and the implications of the NCAA and Power Five's anti-competitive practices. And he's testified in these antitrust suits. And then Schwartz uh, has done a lot of work in that regard as well and has served as a consultant to athletes in the antitrust suits. And he has written quite directly on these uh, financing issues. And he did a, an article on, on 13 myths about college sports. And it's a great it's a great document. I'll try to pull that up and maybe link to it in the show notes. But they both take on some of the shortcomings as they see it in, in the way that we think about college sports financing. And uh, Rasher and Schwartz note that so much of the accounting that or the accounting framework and practices that college sports financing is predicated upon come from the Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act of 1994, the EADA, which is a reporting requirement that is designed to track Title IX compliance. So it's directed to a very specific purpose. And then the other database that a lot of in-system stakeholder beneficiaries rely on is the Integrated Post-Secondary Education Data System, the IPEDS. And that's a self-reported survey on athletics revenues and expenses. And then the NCAA has the this annual disclosure. And then biannually, they produce a document titled Revenues and Expenses of NCAA Division I Intercollegiate Athletics Programs. And they've been doing that, I think, since 2004. But what... Uh, Rasher and Schwartz point out is that, and this is a quote, these EADA data, the gender equity law, are not designed to reflect accurately the economic cost benefits of athletics programs to institutions. And they say, the accounting figures used in the NCAA's agreed-upon procedure reports make sense in a Title IX context, but they, they provide a very poor estimate of the value of revenue generation of a business. And that's important because you, you have the fusion of this seemingly neutral accounting with values that underline that budget, and they go on to point out a, a very important practical issue that doesn't get a lot of attention. And that is that if these big time college sports programs are all hemorrhaging money and they are drawing down on the resources of the university, then why the hell are these universities staying in this business? It makes no sense at all. 
And the, the fact of the matter is that the demand for access to Division I membership and moving up, the upward mobility into the FBS, and now you see this with conference realignment and the group of five trying to move up into the Power Five. Why in the world would they do that? Why would a university allow that to happen if that only increased the likelihood of financial harm to the overall university. It doesn't make any sense. So these people are smart business people. These institutions have very smart accountants and business people and lawyers, and they have made the decision behind the scenes that this is a net benefit for a variety of reasons, financial, reputational, prestige, power, social currency, which all lead to money, all the things that universities crave. So it doesn't make sense that universities would be spending themselves into insolvency to maintain uh, big time football and men's basketball programs. It just doesn't make any sense. So I think that supports uh Rasher and Schwartz's belief that really the accounting understates the revenue and leads to this impression that this is at least a revenue neutral enterprise. And then on the flip side of that, uh, you have the in-system stakeholder advocates and these external advocacy groups, which are really promoting institutional interests and not athletes' interests. They are landing really in kind of the same places as people like Rasher and Schwartz when it comes to the unreliability of the data. So the Knight Commission in its uh, fine print on its database, it says, you know, we recognize that data in the NCAA standardized reports are not perfect. And it says they do not account for varying budget treatment of tuition waivers for scholarship athletes, which can make it difficult to compare spending between institutions. However, these audited reports represent the most accurate athletics financial reports available. And as such, the data should be publicly reported. That goes to transparency, but they're acknowledging the limitations of accounting in athletics budgets and in higher education writ large. And then the NCAA and its revenues and expenses of NCAA Division I intercollegiate athletics programs, that biannual report and in its suggestion for the reader says, an individual institution's actual results may differ greatly from that institution's divisional median or averages. No two institutions operate in identical environments and under identical circumstances. The varying sizes of institutions and their budgets, as well as the markets within which the institutions operate, may have dramatic effects on financial results. In addition, there are inherent differences in fiscal demands and resources of public institutions and those of private institutions. So you, you have this big disclaimer that really, I think, is an important one. And then back in 1998, when Alan Sack and Ellen Storowski wrote College Athletes for Hire, they noted that every college has its own set of accounting conventions, some of which make no economic sense and serve to give a misleading picture of athletics finances. And they were talking about that in the context of whether revenue producing sports can earn enough profits to underwrite the costs of women's athletics. It was a Title IX analysis, but the conclusion is this is the same. And then in 2001, James Shulman and William Bowen in their, their book, The Game of Life, on the value of college athletics, essentially, it was a grand synthesis of that, focusing really on non-big-time uh, sports. In their database, they looked at high-level Division three schools, for example. But 
With respect to the this EADA data, Shulman and Bowen say there are manifold differences in ways of accounting for athletics expenditures, and it would be a mistake to assume that anything like comparability exists across these institutions. And uh, they go on to say that grant totals in the revenue columns for the EADA forms are meaningless for many schools. And then they cite uh, Andrew Zimbalist and his uh, book, 1998 book, Unpaid Professionals, and, and Zimbalist has been involved with the Drake Group. But Zimbalist says that oddities in accounting treatment almost always serve to understate the true costs of athletics. And, and so you, you have Shulman Bowen and Zimbalist saying, look, there's no consistency here. It's almost impossible to draw any reliable conclusions. But we believe that there may be an understatement of the true costs and perhaps an overstatement of the revenue. But all these people land in the same place. And that, that brings us back to this bill. And if you're going to be uh, talking about revenue sharing, you have to deal with all the issues that are identified by these people who, on both sides of the fence, who've been talking about this for a long, long time, and you need a specific formula. It may not be uh, a formula that's identical to what the NCAA uses or what any uh, external advocacy groups have used, but you need to come up with something that is clear, understandable, could be uniform, and comes within a range, a reasonable range, of capturing the, the true money that's in the system both on the revenue side and the expense side. And I think that if you can't do that, then you have really put yourself in a, I think, a no-win situation in terms of political viability. And based on what I heard at this hearing last week, I mean, I think that's going to be the big issue here. And the absence of financial data, the absence of that spreadsheet that one of the senators referred to is a real problem here. And we'll see what happens. I'm going to follow what happens in the Judiciary Committee to see if some of these issues are going to be solved, because both Bradford and Huma at this debate last week, they said, look, we, we hear you. We hear you loud and clear. Bradford said that explicitly. We understand the concerns, and we're going to try to get you uh, something that, that makes more sense, is more specific, and that answers a lot of these questions and concerns on the money issue, on the accounting issue. And we'll see. We'll see. But I think what was perhaps even more important than the accounting issues were the values-based objections here, and that they were made at a visceral level, and they resurrected some of the same talking points that you had coming out from the NCAA Power Five interests from the very beginning of the discussion over nil in 2019. And those are so powerful, and I think it's important to look at how this played out in real time at the values level, and how easy it was for some of these false values-based narratives to just be swept into the discussion without any real pushback. And I think that is, it's been a problem all along in the way that these issues have been framed. And in particular, the discussions that have occurred since 2019 in this name, image, and likeness context and the NCAA Power Fives campaign in the Senate beginning in, in earnest in 2020 with that first hearing in, in commerce in February of 2020. And those talking points are just now part of the way that people think 
about these issues. And that is a powerful dynamic. So in the next episode, I want to really talk about those values issues. And I'm going to walk through the hearing here and talk a little bit about how the issues came up and how the advocates, Bradford and Huma, responded to them. All right. So with that, I'm going to wrap this up. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 